Section three of the Man Who Laughs by Victor Hugo. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Burke. The Man Who Laughs by Victor Hugo. Another preliminary chapter, The Comprachicos. Part one. Who now knows the word Comprachicos, and who knows its meaning? The Comprachicos, or Comprapequenos, were a hideous and nondescript association of wanderers, famous in the seventeenth century, forgotten in the eighteenth, unheard of in the nineteenth. The Comprachicos are like the succession powder, an ancient social characteristic detail. They are part of old human ugliness. To the great eye of history, which sees everything collectively, the Comprachicos belong to the colossal fact of slavery. Joseph, sold by his brethren, is a chapter in their story. The Comprachicos have left their traces in the penal laws of Spain and England. You find here and there, in the dark confusion of English laws, the impress of this horrible truth, like the footprint of a savage in a forest. Comprachicos, the same as Comprapequenos, is a compound Spanish word signifying child buyers. The Comprachicos traded in children. They bought and sold them. They did not steal them. The kidnapping of children is another branch of industry. And what did they make of these children? Monsters. Why monsters? To laugh at. The populace must needs laugh, and kings too. The mountebank is wanted in the streets, the jester at the Louvre. The one is called a clown, the other a fool. The efforts of man to procure himself pleasure are at times worthy of the attention of the philosopher. What are we sketching in these few preliminary pages? A chapter in the most terrible of books. A book which might be entitled The Farming of the Unhappy by the Happy. Part 2 A child destined to be a plaything for men. Such a thing has existed. Such a thing exists even now. In simple and savage times, such a thing constituted an especial trade. The seventeenth century, called the Great Century, was of those times. It was a century very Byzantine in tone. It combined corrupt simplicity with delicate ferocity, a curious variety of civilization, a tiger with a simper. Madame de Sevigné minces on the subject of the fagot and the wheel. That century traded a good deal in children. Flattering historians have concealed the sore, but have divulged the remedy, Vincent de Paul. In order that a human toy should succeed, he must be taken early. The dwarf must be fashioned when young. We play with childhood, but a well-formed child is not very amusing. A hunchback is better fun. Hence grew an art. There were trainers who took a man and made him an abortion. 
They took a face and made a muscle. They stunted growth. They needed the features. Artificial production of teratological cases had its rules. It was quite a science, what one can imagine as the antithesis of orthopedy. Where God had put a look, their art put a squint. Where God had made harmony, they made discord. Where God had made the perfect picture, they re-established the sketch. And, in the eyes of connoisseurs, it was the sketch which was perfect. They debased animals as well. They invented piebald horses. Turenne rode a piebald horse. In our own days, do they not dye dogs blue and green? Nature is our canvas. Man has always wished to add something to God's work. Man retouches creation, sometimes for better, sometimes for worse. The court buffoon was nothing but an attempt to lead back man to the monkey. It was a progress the wrong way, a masterpiece in retrogression. At the same time they tried to make a man of the monkey. Barbara, Duchess of Cleveland and Countess of Southampton, had a mamma set for a page. Frances Sutton, Baroness Dudley, eight peeress in the bench of barons, had tea served by a baboon, clad in cold brocade, which her ladyship called my black. Catherine Sedley, Countess of Dorchester, used to go and take her seat in Parliament, in a coach with memorial bearings, behind which stood, their muscles stuck up in the air, three cape monkeys in grand livery. A Duchess of Medina Selly, whose toilet Cardinal Pole witnessed, had her stockings put on by an orangutan. These monkeys, raised in the scale, were a counterpoise to men brutalized and bestialized. This promiscuousness of man and beast, desired by the great, was especially prominent in the case of the dwarf and the dog. The dwarf never quitted the dog, which was always bigger than himself. The dog was the pair of the dwarf. It was as if they were coupled with a collar. This juxtaposition is authenticated by a mass of domestic records, notably by the portrait of Geoffrey Hudson, dwarf of Henrietta of France, daughter of Henry IV, and wife of Charles I. To degrade a man tends to deform him. The suppression of his state was completed by disfigurement. Certain vivisectors of that period succeeded marvellously well in effacing from the human face the divine effigy. Dr. Conquest, member of the Armour Street College and judicial visitor of the chemist's shops of London, wrote a book in Latin on the pseudo-surgery, the processes of which he describes. If we are to believe Justice of Carrickfergus, the inventor of this branch of surgery was a monk named Avonmore, an Irish word signifying great river. The dwarf of the elector palatine, Perkio, whose effigy, or ghost, springs from a magical box in the cave of Heidelberg, was a remarkable specimen of this science, very varied in its applications. It fashioned beings, the law of whose existence was hideously simple. 
it permitted them to suffer and commanded them to amuse. Part 3 The manufacture of monsters was practiced on a large scale and comprised various branches. The Sultan required them, so did the Pope, the one to guard his women, the other to say his prayers. These were of a peculiar kind, incapable of reproduction. Scarcely human beings, they were useful to voluptuousness and to religion. The Seraglio and the Sistine Chapel utilized the same species of monsters, fierce in the former case, mild in the latter. They knew how to produce things in those days which are not produced now. They had talents which we lack, and it is not without reason that some good folk cry out that the decline has come. We no longer know how to sculpture living human flesh. This is consequent on the loss of the art of torture. Men were once virtuosi in that respect, but also no longer. The art has become so simplified that it will soon disappear altogether. In cutting the limbs of living men, in opening their bellies, and in dragging out their entrails, phenomena were grasped on the moment, and discoveries made. We are obliged to renounce these experiments now, and are thus deprived of the progress which surgery made by aid of the executioner. The vivisection of former days was not limited to the manufacture of phenomena for the marketplace, of buffoons for the palace, a species of augmentative of the courtier, and eunuchs for sultans and popes. It abounded in varieties. One of its triumphs was the manufacture of cocks for the king of England. It was the custom, in the palace of the kings of England, to have a sort of watchman who crowed like a cock. This watcher, awake while all others slept, ranged the palace, and raised from hour to hour the cry of the farmyard, repeating it as often as was necessary, and thus supplying a clock. This man, promoted to be cock, had in childhood undergone the operation of the pharynx, which was part of the art described by Dr. Conquest. Under Charles II, the salivation inseparable to the operation having disgusted the Duchess of Portsmouth, the appointment was indeed preserved, so that the splendour of the crown should not be tarnished, but they got an unmutilated man to represent the cock. A retired officer was generally selected for this honourable employment. Under James II, the functionary was named William Sampson, cock, and received for his crow nine pounds, two shillings and six pence annually. The memoirs of Catherine II informed us that at St. Petersburg, scarcely a hundred years since, whenever the Tsar of Tsarina was displeased with a Russian prince, he was forced to squat down in the great antechamber of the palace, and remain in that posture a certain number of days, meowing like a cat, or clucking like a sitting hen, and pecking his food from the floor. These fashions have passed away but not so much, perhaps, as one might imagine. Nowadays, courtiers slightly modify their intonation in clucking to please their masters. More than one picks up from the ground, we will not say from the mud, what he eats. It is very fortunate that kings cannot err. 
Hence their contradictions never perplex us. In approving always, one is sure to be always right. Which is pleasant. Louis the Fourteenth would not have liked to see at Versailles either an officer acting the cock or a prince acting the turkey. That which raised the royal and imperial dignity in England and Russia would have seemed to Louis the Great incompatible with the crown of St. Louis. We know what his displeasure was when Madame Henriette forgot herself so far as to see a hen in a dream, which was indeed a great breach of good manners in a lady of the court. When one is of the court, one should not dream of the courtyard. Bossuet, it may be remembered, was nearly as scandalized as Louis the Fourteenth. Part Four. The commerce in children in the seventeenth century, as we have explained, was connected with a trade. The Comprachicos engaged in the commerce and carried on the trade. They bought children, worked a little on the raw material, and resold them afterwards. The vendors were of all kinds, from the wretched father getting rid of his family, to the master utilizing his stud of slaves. The sale of men was a simple matter. In our own time we have had fighting to maintain this right. Remember that it is less than a century ago since the elector of Hesse sold his subjects to the king of England, who required men to be killed in America. Kings went to the elector of Hesse as we go to the butcher to buy meat. The elector had food for power in stock, and hung up his subjects in his shop. Come by, it is for sale. In England, under Jeffreys, after the tragical episode of Monmouth, there were many lords and gentlemen beheaded and quartered. Those who were executed left wives and daughters, widows and orphans, whom James the Second gave to the Queen, his wife. The Queen sold these ladies to William Penn. Very likely the King had so much per cent on the transaction. The extraordinary thing is, not that James the Second should have sold the women, but that William Penn should have bought them. Penn's purchase is excused, or explained, by the fact that having a desert to sow with men, he needed women as farming implements. Her gracious majesty made a good business out of these ladies. The young sold dear, we may imagine, with the uneasy feeling which a complicated scandal arouses, that probably some old duchesses were thrown in cheap. The Comprachicos were also called the Chelas, a Hindu word which conveys the image of harrying a nest. For a long time the Comprachicos only partially concealed themselves. There is sometimes in the social order a favouring shadow thrown over iniquitous traders, in which they thrive. In our own day we have seen an association of the kind in Spain, under the direction of the ruffian Ramonsiers last from 1834 to 1866, and hold three provinces under terror for thirty years, Valencia, Alicante, and Murcia. Under the Stuarts, the Comprachicos were by no means in bad odour at court. On occasions they were used for reasons of state. For James II, they were almost an instrument in Regni. 
it was a time when families, which were refractory or in the way, were dismembered, when a descent was cut short, when heirs were suddenly suppressed. At times one branch was defrauded to the profit of another. The Compratricos had a genius for disfiguration, which recommended them to state policy. To disfigure is better than to kill. There was indeed the iron mask, but that was a mighty measure. Europe could not be peopled with iron masks, while deformed tumblers ran about the streets without creating any surprise. Besides, the iron mask is removable, not so the mask of flesh. You are masked forever by your own flesh. What can be more ingenious? The Comprachicos worked on man as the Chinese work on trees. They had their secrets, as we have said. They had tricks, which are now lost arts. A sort of fantastic, stunted thing left their hands. It was ridiculous and wonderful. They would touch up a little being with such skill that its father could not have known it. Ecu me connaîtrait l'œil même de son père, as Racine says in bad French. Sometimes they left the spine straight and remade the face. They unmarked a child, as one might unmark a pocket-handkerchief. Products destined for tumblers had their joints dislocated in a masterly manner. You would have said they had been bowed. Thus gymnasts were made. Not only did the Comprachicos take away his face from the child, they also took away his memory. At least they took away all they could of it. The child had no consciousness of the mutilation to which he had been subjected. This frightful surgery left its traces on his countenance, but not on his mind. The most he could recall was that one day he had been seized by men, that next he had fallen asleep, and then that he had been cured. Cured of what? He did not know. Of burnings by sulphur and incisions by the iron, he remembered nothing. The Comprachicos deadened the little patient by means of a stupefying powder, which was thought to be magical, and suppressed all pain. This powder has been known from time immemorial in China, and is still employed there in the present day. The Chinese have been beforehand with us in all our inventions. Printing, artillery, aerostation, chloroform. Only the discovery, which in Europe at once takes life and birth, and becomes a prodigy and a wonder, remains a chrysalis in China, and is preserved in a death-like state. China is a museum of embryos. Since we are in China, let us remain there a moment to note a peculiarity. In China, from time immemorial, they have possessed a certain refinement of industry and art. It is the art of moulding a living man. They take a child, two or three years old, put him in a porcelain vase, more or less grotesque, which is made without top or bottom, to allow egress for the head and feet. During the day the vase is set upright, and at night is laid down to allow the child to sleep. Thus the child thickens without growing taller, filling up with his compressed flesh and distorted bones the reliefs in the vase. This development in a bottle continues many years. After a certain time it becomes irreparable. When they consider that this is accomplished and the monster made, they break the vase. 
the child comes out, and, behold, there is a man in the shape of a mug. This is convenient. By ordering your dwarf betimes, you are able to have it of any shape you wish. Part 5 James the Second tolerated the Comprachicos for the good reason that he made use of them. At least it happened that he did so more than once. We do not always disdain to use what we despise. This low trade, an excellent expedient sometimes for the higher one which is called state policy, was willingly left in a miserable state, but was not persecuted. There was no surveillance, but a certain amount of attention. Thus much might be useful. The law closed one eye, the king opened the other. Sometimes the king went so far as to avow his complicity. These are audacities of monarchical terrorism. The disfigured one was marked with a fleur-de-lis. They took from him the mark of God. They put on him the mark of the king. Jacob Astley, knight and baronet, lord of Melton Constable in the country of Norfolk, had in his family a child who had been sold and upon whose forehead the dealer had imprinted a fleur-de-lis with a hard iron. In certain cases in which it was held desirable to register, for some reason, the royal origin of the new position made for the child, they used such means. England has always done us the honour to utilise, for her personal service, the fleur-de-lis. The Comprachicos, allowing for the shade which divides a trade from a fanaticism, were analogous to the stranglers of India. They lived among themselves in gangs, and to facilitate their progress, affected somewhat of the Mariandru. They encamped here and there, but they were grave and religious, bearing no affinity to other nomads, and incapable of theft. The people, for a long time, wrongly confounded them with the Moors of Spain and the Moors of China. The Moors of Spain were coiners, the Moors of China were thieves. There was nothing of the sort about the Comprachicos. They were honest folk. Whatever you may think of them, they were sometimes sincerely scrupulous. They pushed open a door, entered, bargained for a child, paid and departed. All was done with propriety. They were of all countries. Under the name of Comprachicos fraternized English, French, Castilians, Germans, Italians. A unity of idea, a unity of superstition, the pursuit of the same calling, make such fusions. In this fraternity of vagabonds, those of the Mediterranean seaboard represented the east, those of the Atlantic seaboard the west. Many Basques conversed with many Irishmen. The Basque and the Irishmen understand each other. They speak the old Punic jargon. Add to this the intimate relations of Catholic Ireland, with Catholic Spain, relations such that they terminated by bringing to the gallows in London one almost king of Ireland, the Celtic Lord of Brani, from which resulted the conquest of the county of Leitrim. The Comprachicos were rather a fellowship than a tribe, rather a residuum than a fellowship. It was all the riffraff of the universe, having for their trade a crime. It was a sort of harlequin people, all composed of rags. To recruit a man was to sew on a tatter. To wander was the Comprachicos' law of existence. To appear and disappear. 
what is barely tolerated cannot take root. Even in the kingdoms where their business supplied the courts, and, on occasions, served as an auxiliary to the royal power, they were now and then suddenly ill-treated. Kings made use of their art, and sent the artists to the galleys. These inconsistencies belong to the ebb and flow of royal caprice. For such is our pleasure. A rolling stone and a roving trade gather no moss. The Comprachicos were poor. They might have said what a lean and ragged witch observed when she saw them setting fire to the stake. Le cheux n'envoie pas la chandelle. It is possible, nay, probable, their chiefs remaining unknown, that the wholesale contractors in the trade were rich. After the lapse of two centuries, it would be difficult to throw any light on this point. It was, as we have said, a fellowship. It had its laws, its oaths, its formulae. It had almost its cabala. Anyone nowadays wishing to know all about the Comprachicos need only go into Biscaya or Galicia. There were many Basques among them, and it is in those mountains that one hears their history. To this day the Comprachicos are spoken of at Oyarzun, at Urbistondo, at Liso, at Astigaraga. Aguardate, niño, que voy a llamar al Comprachicos. Take care, child, or I'll call the Comprachicos. Is the cry with which mothers frighten their children in that country. The Comprachicos, like the Sigoino and the Gypsies, had appointed places for periodical meetings. From time to time their leaders conferred together. In the 17th century they had four principal points of rendezvous. One in Spain, the Pass of Pancorbo. One in Germany, the glade called the Wicked Woman, near Dekirch, where there are two enigmatic bas-reliefs, representing a woman with a head and a man without one. One in France, the hill where was the colossal statue of Massila Promesse, in the old sacred wood of Borvatomona, near bourbon le bain One in England, behind the garden wall of William Challoner, squire of Gisborough and Cleveland, Yorkshire, behind the square tower and the great wing, which is entered by an arched door. Part 6 The laws against vagabonds have always been very rigorous in England. England, in her Gothic legislation, seemed to be inspired with this principle. Homo errans ferrerante pejor. One of the special statues classifies the man without a home as more dangerous than the asp, dragon, lynx, or basilisk. Atrocio raspide, dracone, lince et basilico. For a long time, England troubled herself as much concerning the gypsies, of whom she wished to be rid, as about the wolves, of which she had been cleared. In that the Englishman differed from the Irishman, who prayed to the saints for the health of the wolf, and called him my godfather. English law, nevertheless, in the same way as, we have just seen, it tolerated the wolf, tamed, domesticated, and become in some sort a dog, tolerated the regular vagabond, become in some sort a subject. It did not trouble itself about either the mountebank or the travelling barber, or the quack doctor or the peddler, 
or the open-air scholar, as long as they had a trade to live by. Further than this, and with these exceptions, the description of freedom which exists in the wanderer terrified the law. A tramp was a possible public enemy. That modern thing, the lounger, was then unknown. That ancient thing, the vagrant, was alone understood. A suspicious appearance, that indescribable something which all understand and none can define, was sufficient reason that society should take a man by the collar. Where do you live? How do you get your living? And if he could not answer, harsh penalties awaited him. Iron and fire were in the code. The law practiced the cauterization of vagrancy. Hence, throughout English territory, a veritable loi de suspect was applicable to vagrants, who, it must be owned, readily became malefactors, and particular to gypsies, whose expulsion has erroneously been compared to the expulsion of the Jews and the Moors from Spain, and the Protestants from France. As for us, we do not confound a battue with a persecution. The Compratricos, we insist, had nothing in common with the gypsies. The gypsies were a nation, the Compratricos were a compound of all nations, the lease of a horrible vessel full of filthy waters. The Compratricos had not, like the gypsies, an idiom of their own. Their jargon was a promiscuous collection of idioms. All languages were mixed together in their language. They spoke a medley. Like the gypsies, they had come to be a people winding through the peoples, but their common tie was association, not race. At all epochs in history, one finds in the vast liquid mass which constitutes humanity some of these streams of venomous men exuding poison around them. The gypsies were a tribe, the Compratricos a free masonry, a masonry having not a noble aim but a hideous handicraft. Finally, their religions differ. The gypsies were pagans, the Compratricos were Christians, and more than that, good Christians, as became an association which, although a mixture of all nations, owed its birth to Spain, a devout land. They were more than Christians, they were Catholics. They were more than Catholics, they were Romans, and so touchy in their faith, and so pure, that they refused to associate with the Hungarian nomads of the Comitate of Pest, commanded and led by an old man, having for scepter a wand with a silver ball, surmounted by the double-headed Austrian eagle. It is true that these Hungarians were schismatics, to the extent of celebrating the Assumption on the 29th August which is an abomination. In England, so long as the Stuarts reigned, the confederation of the Compratricos was, for motives of which we have already given you a glimpse, to a certain extent protected. James the Second, a devout man who persecuted the Jews and trampled out the gypsies, was a good prince to the Compratricos. We have seen why. The Compratricos were buyers of the human wares 
in which he was dealer. They excelled in disappearances. Disappearances are occasionally necessary for the good of the state. An inconvenient heir of tender age, whom they took and handled, lost his shape. This facilitated confiscation. The transfer of titles to favorites was simplified. The Comprachicos were, moreover, very discreet and very taciturn. They bound themselves to silence and kept their word, which is necessary in affairs of state. There was scarcely an example of their having betrayed the secrets of the king. This was, it is true, for their interest, and if the king had lost confidence in them, they would have been in great danger. They were thus of use, in a political point of view. Moreover, these artists furnished singers for the Holy Father. The Comprachicos were useful for the Miserere of Allegri. They were particularly devoted to Mary. All this pleased the papistry of the Stuarts. James the Second could not be hostile to holy men who pushed their devotion to the Virgin, to the extent of manufacturing eunuchs. In sixteen eighty eight, there was a change of dynasty in England. Orange supplanted Stuart. William the Third replaced James the Second. James the Second went away to die in exile. Miracles were performed on his tomb, and his relics cured the Bishop of Autun of Fistula, a worthy recompense of the Christian virtues of the prince. William, having neither the same ideas nor the same practices as James, was severe to the Comprachicos. He did his best to crush out the vermin. A statue of the early part of William and Mary's reign hit the association of child-buyers hard. It was as the blow of a club to the Comprachicos, who were from that time pulverized. By the terms of this statue, those of the fellowship taken and duly convicted were to be branded with a red-hot iron, imprinting R on the shoulder, signifying rogue, on the left-hand T, signifying thief, and on the right-hand M, signifying manslayer. The chiefs, supposed to be rich, although beggars in appearance, were to be punished in the colistridium, that is, the pillory, and branded on the forehead with a P, besides having their goods confiscated and the trees in their woods rooted up. Those who did not inform against the Comprachicos were to be punished by confiscation and imprisonment for life, as for the crime of misprision. As for the women found among these men, they were to suffer the cucking-stool. This is a tumbrel, the name of which is composed of the French word coquin and the German stool. English law being endowed with a strange longevity, this punishment still exists in English legislation for quarrelsome women. The cucking-stool is suspended over a river or a pond, the woman seated on it. The chair is allowed to drop into the water and then pulled out. This dipping of the woman is repeated three times, to cool her anger, says the commentator Chamberlain. End of section 3 Recording by Burke